0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, and uh, this morning we're going to look at verses 4 through 12. Uh, We are considering the theme of proclaiming the gospel as we look at Paul's first missionary journey uh, in Acts 13 and 14, and so this morning uh, we will be looking at verses 4 through 12 A couple weeks ago, we saw that Paul and Barnabas are sent out from the church in Antioch. That's the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. And now we will track with Paul and Barnabas as they take on their first leg of the missionary journey here. So Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 4. This is God's Word. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil,' You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for how You have revealed and recorded to us in Your Scriptures the spread of the gospel through the first century. Lord, we thank You that the message of the Lord Jesus made its way across The known world at that time, and Lord, we thank You for the establishment of Your church. We thank You for the faithful ministry of Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch. And Father, as we seek to be faithful disciples of Christ today, Lord, we pray that You would teach us from their example. Lord, we pray that we also would know the presence and power of Your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church, and we pray that we would be faithful ambassadors of Christ to proclaim Christ among the nations. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. When October of 2018, Pew Research produced a study entitled, New Age Beliefs Common Among Both Religious and Non-Religious Americans. And for the purpose of this study, the surveyors inquired about four ideas that are often characterized as New Age beliefs. The four ideas were, one, belief that spiritual energy can be located in physical things like rocks and mountains, two, belief in psychics, three, belief in reincarnation, and four, belief in astrology. And so they contacted both religious and non-religious individuals and asked them, do you believe in these New Age concepts or ideas? Surprisingly, over 60% of self-professing Christians express belief in at least one of these New Age ideas. Perhaps even more unexpected is that 22% of atheists said they believe in one of these New Age ideas And 56% of agnostics said they did. So, kind of the idea here is, if I understand correctly, I don't believe in God. I'm not sure I believe that He exists. But I do believe that rocks possess spiritual power and that psychics can tell me my future. That is a strange way of viewing the world. I don't think it would stand up to scrutiny. But it is interesting how difficult it is. We see this by this survey. How difficult it is even for atheists and agnostics to deny the supernatural. Because we all have this innate sense that there is more to this life than what we see. So 60% of self-professing Christians, 56% or 22% of atheists, and 56% of agnostics say they believe in one of these New Age ideas or beliefs. Now, returning to the 60% of self-professing Christians who said they believe in these New Age ideas, I acknowledge that it's difficult to discern kind of the significance of that number. Because there does have to be a distinction made here. On the one hand, a Christian might believe... That there is a real spiritual world that exists that can influence psychics and witches and shamans and so forth. And that is true. The Bible acknowledges this spiritual realm. On the other hand, Christians may not only believe this world exists, but they also may put their trust in this spiritual world. And so rather, putting their, rather than putting their full trust in the Lord... They consult psychics. They look to stars. They try to tap into the spiritual energy that supposedly exists in mountains or trees or rocks. I imagine, unfortunately, that of those 60% of self-professing Christians who said they believe in this kind of new age ideas, many of them, unfortunately, probably do what I just described. And this attempt to mix, to meld orthodox biblical Christianity and the occult is clearly forbidden in Scripture. I've entitled our message this morning, The Spirit's Triumph Over Magic. The Spirit's Triumph Over Magic. If we look at the book of Acts as a whole, really we get an outline of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Lord Jesus there speaks to His disciples and He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And actually we see the book of Acts unfold exactly as the Lord Jesus describes there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So the gospel first goes to Jerusalem, and we see this in Acts chapters 1 verse through 7. And then the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria, and we see this in Acts chapters 8 through 12. And now at this point in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, we see that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And along the way, whether it's to Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth, as the gospel goes forth... The proclamation of the gospel is met with certain opposition, various ideas and philosophies that oppose the faith that Paul and the other apostles are proclaiming. And one of the ideas, one of the philosophies that opposes the message of the gospel is the idea of magic and the occult. Listen to the warning of G. Campbell Morgan. He wrote this about a century ago, okay, so it's like a hundred years ago, he wrote this, quote, Trafficking in the occult in the name of religion will always attract the attention of men, and it is one of the grave perils which at this hour is threatening Christian evangelism. The aim of it is to turn men aside from the faith. Perchance it is not consciously the aim of some who practice that which is false and supernaturalism, but it is the aim of the prince of the power of the air, who works through the children of disobedience to prevent the spread of the gospel." End of quote. What we see is in this first leg of Paul's missionary journey here in Acts chapter 13 is that Paul experiences opposition from a magician who is adept in the practices of the occult. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel prevails... And Paul leads a Gentile in a distant land to faith in Jesus Christ. So my friends, this is what I want us to see in our text this morning. A truth that has been demonstrated over and over and over again throughout the centuries. Namely, that the church's spirit-filled witness will prevail over magic and the occult in far places and among all peoples. So if you, want to, if you want to know the message this morning, kind of in one sentence, that's it. The church's spirit-filled witness will prevail over magic and the occult in far places and among all peoples. Now as we consider this truth from our passage, I want us to see that our passage kind of unfolds. The narrative here unfolds in four parts. And we're going to look at each one of these parts or movements in our story. The first is this. Bearing witness in far places and to all peoples. So if you're taking notes, this is our first point. Bearing witness in far places and to all peoples. Look there in verses 4 through 7. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named bar He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now as Luke records Paul's missionary journeys, it's obvious that Luke is being selective in the material that he chooses to share with us. Of course, Paul and Barnabas taught and ministered in more places and to more people than what we have recorded here in the book of Acts. In this sense, we're getting the highlights of Paul's missionary journeys. This is kind of like Luke's PowerPoint presentation of Paul's missionary journeys. But Luke's choices of what to include in the book of Acts are not random. His choices are intentional. They're purposeful. What he chooses to record is actually intended to convey a message. So when we read of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, it's helpful for us to ask a couple of questions. A couple of questions that are helpful for us to ask to discern what Luke is trying to communicate is where and who. Where and who. So first of all, where? Where do Paul and Barnabas travel on this first leg of their missionary journey? Well, notice here in the text that they begin in Antioch. And then in verse 4, you see that they traveled to Seleucia. Now, Seleucia was the port city of Antioch. So, they're being sent out from the church in Antioch. They go to Seleucia, and Seleucia now gives them access to the sea. Then we read in verse 4 that from there, from Seleucia, they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It is just south of modern-day Turkey. We don't know why exactly. Luke doesn't tell us that Paul and Barnabas chose to go to Cyprus first, but it does make sense because we know that Cyprus was Barnabas's hometown. It was also a convenient stopping point on the way to southern Turkey. Then in verse 5, we see that as they arrived in Cyprus, they arrived at Salamis, which was on the east coast of the island of Cyprus. Then you see there in the text that when they were in Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Then Luke tells us that they traveled 90 miles across the island of Cyprus. So they were in the east coast in Seleucia. They traveled 90 miles across Cyprus and they arrived at the coastal city of Paphos. Okay? This was the capital city of Cyprus actually. And so here on the island of Cyprus from the east coast to the west coast, they travel all the way across, Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now why is that significant? Why is it significant that this is where Paul and Barnabas bear witness to Jesus? On the island of Cyprus. When Acts, it seems that Luke is intentional not only to record for us that the spread of the gospel among diverse ethnicities and cultures and classes of people, but also among diverse geographical locations. Because Luke understood... That the spread of the Gospel among these diverse geographical locations was actually a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of future salvation through the Messiah. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4. This is actually the Lord speaking through Isaiah, and He's speaking of His servant, the coming Messiah. And the Lord says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, the islands, wait for His law. If you look at the Old Testament prophecies, you will see that this message that is coming, this message of Messiah, it is going to go to the mountains and the islands and so forth. It will go across the oceans. And so here, as Luke is observing... Paul's missionary journey, and that they go first to Cyprus, Luke sees this as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming Christ and his gospel in far places, even to the islands of the earth. So this is where they proclaim Christ. But who do they proclaim Christ to? Who do Paul and Barnabas minister to on their first missionary journey? Well, note here in our text the different individuals or characters that are involved in our narrative. You see there in verses 4 and 5 we read they, and they obviously refers to Paul and Barnabas. And then in verse 5 we learn that John, that is John and Mark, also accompanied them and assisted them in their work. And then in verse 6 you see that Luke mentions a Jewish false prophet. Now we will have more to say about him in a few minutes. But then look at verse 7. We're introduced there in verse 7 to Sergius Paulus. Luke tells us he was a man of intelligence. He was a man of learning. He was also the proconsul of Cyprus. Now, a proconsul was kind of like a governor. Like Governor Kemp here in Georgia. A proconsul was a Roman official who was given authority over entire Roman province. So, Sergius Paulus here was the proconsul, or he was the governor of the island of Cyprus. Now, why is that significant? Why is it significant that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel to Sergius Paulus? Well, again, Luke would have seen this as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Again, listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, 7, we read, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. So here, the Lord is speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of Jesus. It's Jesus who was His servant, who was deeply despised and abhorred by the nations. Right? He was crucified. The Lord goes on to say, King shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In other words, even though the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, will be despised by the nations, there's coming a day when kings and princes will bow down to Him and worship Him. And so here we see that Paul and Barnabas are not only proclaiming the gospel in faraway places to the islands, but they are proclaiming Christ and His gospel to all peoples, even to Gentile kings and princes of the nations. Of course, as we consider here that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel far to the islands and among all peoples, wide to all peoples, we realize that we bear a similar responsibility to bear witness to Christ far and wide. And this means we should pray and be sensitive to opportunities, even as Jesse led us in prayer this morning. We should pray and be sensitive to opportunities to share Christ with those in our workplace or those in our neighborhood. In so doing, we should be inclined to move towards those who are different than us and share the love and the message of Christ with them. Of course, a more direct application, though, here of Paul and Barnabas' example is to take the gospel even beyond the confines of our workplace or the boundaries of our neighborhood. As I reflect on the last 20 years or so of our ministry here at the church, we've been blessed to take mission trips or to send missionaries to Turkey and Madagascar and Southeast Asia and Africa. By God's grace, we have shared Christ in cities and rural villages on islands and on mountains, on the continents of Europe and Africa and Asia, to folks who are rich and who are poor, to young and old, and from a whole host of diverse ethnicities, cultures, and languages. And through the example of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas here, we see that this is the work that the Lord has called us to as a church. To bear witness to Christ in far places and among all peoples. This is the first movement that we see here in our narrative. Bearing witness in far places and to all peoples. But the second point, and this is the second movement in our narrative that I want us to see, is opposition from a magician. Opposition from a magician. Yes, that does rhyme. I didn't necessarily intend for it to, but it does. Look there in verse 8. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Paul and Barnabas are met now with opposition. And I want us to understand here who this magician was. We're introduced to him actually in verse 6. So if you go further back up in the text, we read, when they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a false prophet named Jesus." Now this is interesting because Bar-Jesus, that name there, actually means Son of Salvation. So Bar-Jesus, it seems that Bar-Jesus would have claimed that if people took His instruction, if they followed His counsel, then they would discover the way of salvation. He is claiming to be the Son of Salvation. At the same time, he's claiming to be a Jewish prophet, the son of salvation. At the same time, we see in verse 6 and in verse 9 that Luke states that Bar-Jesus was a magician. Now, I want to clarify something here. Luke is not saying that Bar-Jesus is a wicked man because he knew some cool card tricks, you know, or because he could take his thumb off. Can you do that? See, I used to do that with my kids all the time. They were fascinated by that. But but Luke's not saying that Bar Jesus was a wicked man because he could do some cool tricks or you know entertain people with a sleight of hand. Rather, Bar Jesus here claimed to possess spiritual knowledge and access to the spiritual world, spiritual acts or access to uh, spiritual beings and pagan deities by which then he could inqu- he could acquire insight into the future. And he could influence future events. So that's what Bar-Jesus is doing here. That's the type of magic that's being spoken of here. It's not just entertaining people with a sleight of hand or doing some card tricks. He's claiming special access and spiritual knowledge by which he can influence future events. Cast spells and curses and blessings and so forth. Dennis Johnson, who's a Christian theologian, has this to say about the practice of magic in the first century. He says, quote, "In the Hellenistic Roman world, magic focused on the manipulation of supernatural forces for the benefit of individuals or for harm to their enemies." By invoking the names of one or more gods or demigods, sometimes using as many divine names as he could muster from any and every religious background, together with appropriate rituals, "...the magician assured his clients that he could expel demons, heal diseases, warm the heart of a reluctant lover, bring misfortune on a political rival, ward off storms and pirates at sea, enable a wife to conceive a son, and so on." End of quote. You know what's noteworthy about that? Is that that is the same reason, those are the same kinds of reasons... That people today consult their horoscope or visit a palm reader or play with a Ouija board. In other words, instead of trusting the Lord with our future, folks will often look to a new age advisor or a saint or an angel or a deceased relative or a demonic spirit. To provide them something that they believe the Lord will not provide them or cannot provide them. You see, at the heart of the practice of magic is this insistence that I will get what I want, when I want, how I want. Even if that means I must go above or below or around the Lord, I will get what I want. It is placing one's trust and dependence in some spiritual being or practice rather than trusting our full confidence in the loving providential care of our Father through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And for this reason, when we read in our text that Bar Jesus was a Jew who practiced magic, that should immediately trigger our discernment alarms. Because Jewish and magic should not go together. In fact, in the Old Testament scriptures, God consistently forbid the Jewish people from participating in or practicing magic. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. There we read There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So it is no wonder then that Luke describes Bar-Jesus here in our text as a pseudo, this is the Greek word, pseudo-prophetes. That is, pseudo prophet, as it's translated here, a false prophet. He was a Jew who professed to be a prophet, but we know he was a false prophet because he practiced magic and was involved in the occult. Now, notice Bar Jesus' relationship, though, with Sergius Paulus. We see it there in verse 7. He was with the proconsul, that is, Bar Jesus was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Paulus. So it's likely here that what's happening in this relationship, the dynamic of this relationship was that Bar-Jesus served as a spiritual and political advisor to Sergius Paulus. John Stott refers to Bar-Jesus here as a court wizard. In other words, he would have been on Sergius Paulus's cabinet. And Sergius Paulus had an interest in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. You see it there in verse 7. Sergius Paul has summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And this is what Bar Jesus, this is what Elimus the magician opposed. You see it there in verse 8. But Elimus the magician opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And we can imagine why Bar Jesus would be in such opposition. The message of Paul and Barnabas threatened his political influence. It likely threatened his livelihood because Sergius Paulus was probably paying Bar Jesus for these services. And given that Sergius Paulus was a proconsul, he was probably paying Bar Jesus rather handsomely. And so, Bar Jesus, this false Jewish prophet who practiced mag- magic and was involved in the occult, opposed. Paul and his ministry. Opposed his proclamation of the gospel. So that's the second movement we see here in our text. Opposition from a magician. Now the third point in our third movement is the Spirit's witness through confrontation. The Spirit's witness through confrontation. Look there in verses 9 and 11 and we read these words. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here we see that Paul is indignant and he responds in defiance and boldly confronts Bar Jesus. Now, in Paul's words here to Bar Jesus, we notice a number of striking contrasts that give us a better understanding of Paul's response and also of who Bar Jesus really is. Now, notice this Paul here bluntly addresses. Bar-Jesus as you, son of the devil. Now, do you remember what was the meaning of Bar-Jesus' name? Bar-Jesus means son of salvation, right? But Paul is saying here to Bar-Jesus, you've been misnamed. Actually, you are the son of the devil. Because you are representing him in his work. Paul goes on to charge Bar-Jesus, you enemy of all all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Now, there's another contrast here in in the text. Because Luke stresses here in our narrative that the missionary labors of Paul and Barnabas are of the Spirit. In verse 4, we see that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, we see that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But in contrast here, Paul says that Bar-Jesus is full of all deceit and villainy. You see, Bar-Jesus claims that his access to the spiritual world and his manipulation of the spiritual world, that it will lead to wealth and happiness and prosperity. Paul is saying it's all lies, it's all deceit, it's all fraud, it's all false. Finally, Paul inquires of Bar-Jesus, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, how was Bar-Jesus making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Well, notice there in verse 4, Luke tells us that Sergius Paulus had summoned uh, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. And Paul and Barnabas, they gladly obliged, right? Now they have traveled from Antioch down to Cyprus, across the island, and they are there ready to present Sergius Paulus with the way of salvation. But in verse 8, we read that Bar Jesus opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Sergius Paulus is interested in learning about the way of salvation. Paul and Barnabas are intent in showing him the way of salvation, but Bar-Jesus was seeking to turn Sergius Paulus from the way, from the faith. And this way he was attempting to obscure, to distort, to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And my friends, for those who become involved in in the occult, whether this is their intention or not, This is often the effect. They themselves and anyone who comes under their influence are led down crooked paths while the straight paths of life and salvation in Jesus Christ are obscured and obstructed and covered over. Now we should acknowledge that there is a real spiritual realm that exists. And the Bible affirms this. And we do, in fact, have a real enemy. His name is the devil. And we are engaged as Christians in a real spiritual battle. In fact, one of the verses in my memory verse plan that I recently reviewed was Act, or Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, Paul writes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. At the same time, my friends, it's so critical for us to understand as Christians that we prevail in this battle not by being distracted or fascinated with our guardian angel or making contact with dead spirits, Or communicating with ghosts. Or casting spells. Or playing with tarot cards. Or paying a psychic to tap into the secrets of our future. All of these activities fall under the category of making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It transfers our faith from God to lesser spiritual underlings and distracts our attention from that which is our only source of spiritual victory and power, namely Christ and His Word. And this is why Paul is so full of righteous indignation. Some folks assume that when one is filled with the Holy Spirit, they only say sweet and nice things. But that's not the case here, is it? Paul is filled with righteous indignation indignation and he's filled with righteous indignation for a couple of reasons one because bar Jesus was claiming to be a prophet of God and he wasn't he was a charlatan he was a fraud his life and ministry were in direct contradiction to God's Word and he was leading people down a crooked path to destruction and so Paul like the prophets of the Old Testament and like his master the Lord Jesus Reserved his harshest criticism for those who professed to be God's prophets, God's priests, God's pastors, and yet were in reality wolves in sheep's clothing. The other reason, though, why Paul was so indignant, why he was so full of righteous indignation, the other reason was love. It was love for Sergius Paulus, it was love for this man who served as the proconsul in Cyprus. It was love for this pagan Roman Gentile official who had been blinded by idolatry and occultic practices for so long. It was love for this man who in verse 7 had summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Out of love for Sergius Paulus, Paul was indignant and filled with righteous indignation. And my friends, Luke is teaching us here in our text, that faithful Christian ministry and faithful proclamation of the gospel will consistently be opposed by the spirits of this age. But when we face spiritual opposition, Paul and Barnabas model for us that we should not wither in fear. We should not retreat but rather with confidence in Christ and His Gospel filled with the power of the Holy Spirit out of love for those who are spiritually lost, we should press forward and boldly declare Christ and His Word. Elimus, Bargesus, the magician, opposed Paul. He opposed Barnabas. He opposed the Gospel. But Paul and Barnabas were faithful to step forward in faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and to proclaim Christ. That leads us to our fourth point. The gospel triumphs through hope and faith. The gospel triumphs through hope and faith. Look there in verses 11 and 12 when we read these words. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now you see there in verse 11 that Bar Jesus is cursed with blindness. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And this curse is symbolic of the real spiritual blindness that Bar Jesus possessed and that he inflicted on others. And then notice in verse 12, we see that Sergius Paulus, the Roman council, believes the gospel. So here we have two men, Bar Jesus and Sergius Paulus, two men who were involved in the occult. One of them fully invested and immersed in the occult, Bar Jesus. The other, who was not necessarily immersed in the occult, but was intrigued by the possible benefits that he could receive from it. That's Sergius Paulus. And both of their lives are dramatically impacted by the Lord Jesus and His gospel. After I had prepared uh, much of the message for this week, I was actually working out uh, at the gym on Friday. I checked my Facebook real quick, and I saw that World Magazine on Friday produced an article... And the subject of the article was on the rise of paganism in the United States. The article observes, quote, Witchcraft, for example, is making a comeback with at least 1.5 million practicing witches across the United States. So is interest in astrology, tarot cards, and all manner of polytheistic spiritual enlightenment. The astrology industry has increased by $10 billion from twenty eighteen to two thousand twenty-one alone. End of quote. Perhaps there's some here this morning who, like Bar Jesus, are fairly immersed in occultic practices. Or like Sergius Paulus, are not immersed in occultic practices, but are quite intrigued by the benefits. That occultic practices might offer. You're dabbling in it. Listen, my friends, God is declaring to you through the Scriptures this morning that there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And by Jesus, we see that the gospel triumphs through hope. Look there at verse 11. Luke records that Bar-Jesus is struck with blindness. We're told that he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now that does not sound very hopeful, does it? But it seems that Luke is recording the description of what happens to Bar-Jesus here in a very intentional manner to remind us of another significant event that has happened in the book of Acts. The conversion of Paul. Do you remember how Paul was converted? He was on the road to Damascus. He was intent on killing Christians and destroying the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And what happened to Paul? He was struck with blindness. We read the event in Acts chapter 9, verse 12. Paul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blind. And then Luke records. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And here, the description of what happens to Bar-Jesus. Luke used the same exact language. He's blind and he must be led by the hand. And it seems that Bar-Jesus is inflicted with blindness so that by the grace of God his spiritual eyes might be open and he might come to faith in Christ just as Paul did. My friends, if you've been immersed in the occult, if you've been immersed in magic and divination, there is hope for you in the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Sergius Paulus, we see that the gospel triumphs through faith. So we should not misunderstand Sergius Paulus is not a he's not an innocent man in this whole scenario. It seems apparent that Sergius Paulus had sought out Bar-Jesus and paid him for the benefits of his dark magic. But in verse 12 we read, "...the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." And so despite his fascination with the occult, despite the demonic opposition that had attempted to prevent Paul and Barnabas from proclaiming the gospel to him the spirit triumph through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and Sergius Paulus comes to faith in Christ. But here's what I want you to notice in particular about his conversion. Notice that Sergius Paulus does not believe simply because Paul had demonstrated the power of Christ over magic by inflicting Bar-Jesus with blindness. Of course, the Lord used this dramatic event to bring Sergius Paulus to faith. But Luke tells us, you see it there in the text, that what really astonished Sergius Paulus, what really caused him to marvel, to be in awe, was not that Jesus was struck with blindness, but what really astonished him was the teaching of the Lord. And this is the reason, finally, why Sergius Paulus came to faith in Christ. Dramatic demonstrations of the power of God will not save anyone. What saves individuals from magic and the occult, from the ravages of sin and death, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what astonished Sergius Paulus. In fact, Luke stresses the primacy of God's word through this entire narrative. If you look back through the verses, you'll see in verse 5, Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. In verse 7, Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. In verse 8, Elimus the magician opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Well, what faith is that? It's the faith revealed in God's Word and in the Gospel. In verse 12, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is what made such a dramatic impact in Sergius Paulus' life. This is what astonished him. This is why his life was changed and transformed. And to, and to, to be more precise, what is it specifically that Paul and Barnabas taught? What is it specifically that they proclaimed from God's Word? Next week, we will have the opportunity to look at Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. We won't look at it very much this morning, but I just want to show you one verse in that sermon that basically summarizes the whole. It's at the core of Paul's message. It's the core of this sermon here that we find in Acts chapter 13. It's the core of all Paul's writings. It's the core of Scripture itself. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 38. This is Paul. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This, my friends, is the message Paul proclaimed. This is the message that is the heart of the Word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus. This was the message that came to Sergius Paulus. This is the message that astonished him. That caused him to marvel. That caused him to be in awe. That from the Old Testament Scriptures, now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So that through faith in Him through faith in His atoning death, we can know God and not only know God, but fully entrust ourselves to Him who is the true Sovereign, who rules and reigns over every spiritual power and being and will care for us as a loving Heavenly Father. My friends, if you have dabbled in the occult or you're intrigued by what it may offer you, don't marvel at what the occult offers. Rather, be astonished by the eternal truth of God's Word and the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ, and turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your grace and for the power of the gospel. And we recognize, Lord, that what we enjoy today, even in this church and in this worship service is a result of the proclamation and advance of your gospel all the way back from the first century and what happened on the island of Cyprus through all of Paul's missionary journeys and the spread of the gospel from those locations then to the utter ends of the earth. And Father, we are so grateful as we realize that we, in fact, are the ends of the earth. And that the gospel has come to us. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereign power. We thank you that you have demonstrated in the Lord Jesus your power over all spiritual beings, over all spiritual powers. And Father, I do pray that if there are any here this morning who have been deceived by a bar Jesus, who have given themselves to magic, to occultic practices in various ways, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the truth of the gospel they would be set free and delivered. Lord, may we not entertain any of that in our own lives and our own hearts. But Lord, may we be fully devoted to you. May our hearts find our full confidence and rest and trust in you and in your faithfulness and in your word. Lord, help us as we seek to be faithful to proclaim this good news, this gospel. And we pray that as a result, many more would come to faith in Christ and be delivered from the bondages of sin. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.